we've been in John chapter 14, where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he really primarily in chapter 14 is dealing with their troubled hearts. And uh, the last couple of messages, we have focused on the, the, the counsel or the counselor for those troubled hearts. And uh, we kind of see them leaving at the end of chapter 14. There's actually kind of a, a debate as to exactly how the next chapter fits in and the flow of things. And it's very possible that as Jesus is walking with his disciples, he's talking and he's giving these examples. It's also possible that, that John, who is choosing to bring uh, some of, the, some of the, the, the dialogue together, just brings those accounts that maybe did take place in the upper room at that point in time. And so this is all part of the context of Jesus leaving and the trouble that they, this, the disciples are experiencing because of what Jesus is saying. There's going to be someone who's going to betray him. Um, that he is going to depart, he's going to leave you, but he's, he's been fashioning and, sh and shaping them with his words of comfort, of care. And as we get to chapter 15, he comes up with an illustration to help them understand what he is ultimately going to be calling them to. Because if he's leaving, he's not leaving them as orphans, remember? He's leaving them with a comforter or a counselor or an advocate who is the Holy Spirit. And so when he's gone, they will have residing in themselves the Holy Spirit, but not just so that he can just reside. They are going to have the Holy Spirit so that they can carry on ministry, that, that their mission can be accomplished. And it's his mission through them to the world. So how do you do that mission? Or maybe the question is, what kind of person is the kind of person that can do that mission? And so part of what Jesus is trying to accomplish now in the, this dialogue with the disciples is, is this whole idea, this whole understanding of, um, of being part of him, of abiding in the vine, of, of doing mission with him as the source of strength and guidance and, and purpose. And so we come in this passage to this word abide. And I actually debated whether or not to do all of 25 verses in one sermon um, because you could, but I just felt like there's, there's, there's so much practical living stuff in chapter 15 here. It's worth us taking our time to focus in on these three different, you might want to say, arenas or elements that are part of what it means to abide. And so we have this word meno, and this word meno is the word to abide. It describes something that remains where it is, um, something that continues in a fixed state, or something that endures. That's kind of like the idea of what this word is about. Now, let me, let me just say from the, from the beginning, some people will come to this passage and to this word, and they will think, ah, this word is a word that describes some higher plane of a Christian walk. As we look at this illustration that Jesus uses, the purpose of this illustration is to identify two different groups. You either are abiding or you're not. And so abiding here is not like, okay, I'm a Christian, but now I am going to go abide. No, if you are a Christian, you are abiding. That's the point. Okay? So you are tapped in, so to speak, into the vine. But this abiding is something that spreads over these 25 verses. And I just want to kind of lay out for you how at least I see it taking place. First of all, we're going to find out that... Um, we, we abide in his life. This is verses 1 through 11. That's what we're going to focus on today, where he says, abide in me. Then he transitions and talks about abiding in his love. Now, some of that's going to be in our text today, but it continues on uh, in verses 12 through 17. It's, it's fleshed out more, talking about how you are to love one another. And the basis of that is the fact that you are abiding in my love. And then, as we get to verses 18 through 25, we're abiding in his legacy. Well, what's that legacy? That ultimately, when people hate you, they're not hating you, they're hating him. And so the reason that they hate you is because you are abiding in him, that you represent him. And so it's, it's him that they really are against. And so we join together it with Christ if we are his followers by abiding in that legacy or abiding in his suffering or abiding in the hatred that is directed ultimately at him. Okay? So this abiding is not some 
mystical, emotional, experiential thing that happens to me when I happen to go on a retreat or up to Yosemite or wherever you go to have those things. It's a reality of being a Christian. And if you are a Christian today, if you truly are a Christian today, then you are abiding. Okay? That's part of the package and that's part of the purpose of what he is saying. So, like I said, the point here is that without Jesus, we can do nothing. If he's sending us on ministry, on mission, we must remember that as his children, there's nothing that we can do except that he is the one that is doing it through us. Life only comes from Jesus. So we look at verse 8 to begin with this morning. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. And I would like for us this morning to really answer the question, what is a true disciple? How do we prove what is a true disciple based on this passage of uh, of Scripture? And I think that will help us to understand how the, the life of Christ flows through those who are his true believers. So we have a comparison, we have a distinction, but here is the ultimate premise of this message. So in this passage, in order to prepare his disciples for their mission when he leaves, Jesus explains the proof of true discipleship through the analogy of a vineyard. And maybe to kind of lay out the text a little bit, it's not going to be our outline, but just to lay out the text a little bit, we're going to begin by understanding the analogy that Jesus uses about the vine and the branches and all that kind of stuff. Then it's going to continue with specific application. We're going to have kind of a big chunk there with specific application. And then at the end, um, we're going to find some assurances based on that application that are true for those who are uh, the true branches, who are bearing fruit, who are true believers. Okay, So um, let's just take a moment right now to pray and ask that God would use this and give us understanding and clarity so that, so that we can uh, truly benefit from what it is that he desires for us to learn this morning. Lord, help us today. To consider the subject of abiding in the vine, Lord, not as something distant, but Lord, something that is talking specifically to us, about us, and Lord, that you want to teach us about our relationship with you. Lord, you want us to see what it means to be a true disciple of Christ and and how we measure that and how we understand that uh, to be the the, the basis of, uh, of how we We measure our walk with you. So, Lord, help us today to be honest before you. Lord, help us um, to to consider whether or not we truly are your disciples. And it's possible, Lord, that there's someone here today um, who is wrestling with that. Or someone who considers themselves to be one of your disciples, a follower of yours, but, Lord, is is not because they see that they're not, um, not marked by the things that are identified in this passage. Lord, help us today to think through this together and to encourage one another, and Lord, to be strengthened through this time. And uh, we just ask for your strength in, in, in your presence now. In your precious name, amen. Now, I, I, want you, I want you to get a picture as we begin here today, especially here in California. We have a, we have a great opportunity to, to understand this text, maybe more so than other people around the United States, because we are in wine country, right? How many of you have ever been up to Napa before? All right, you go up to Napa this time of year, what do the vines look like? full and rich and all that kind of stuff. No, they're kind of like, eh, right? And you're like, okay, this is not the coolest place to live. But maybe in the summer when, when the fruit is its ripest and it's green, I mean, there's activity, there's atmosphere, and you, you recognize, you know, boy, there's a lot of vineyards around, right? Now, just this, this, illi- this illustration, this image is not unusual at all. In fact, this is a common illustration to use, and it was helpful um, for Jesus now to use this to describe the relationships that he was going to have with um, his followers. So I want to begin today just with that mindset of what a vine looks like and how, how vines are kind of laid out to begin by looking at this analogy. And we'll start by saying that Jesus is the true vine. That's what the text tells us. Verse, verse 1, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. I am the true vine. So if Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine, he must be distinguishing himself from a false or failed vine, right? He's not just, I'm the vine. 
There's a lot of I am's in John's gospel. This is the last one. But he says, I am the true vine. He also used that same word talking about I am the true shepherd, or I'm the good shepherd in comparison to the bad shepherds, right? So here he says, I am the true vine. And so to answer that question, we, we need to go to the Old Testament. And you can just, just listen as I kind of list off some of the vines that are talked about in the Old Testament. We have in Psalm 80, we have Israel as the vine, just listed out as the vine. Isaiah chapter 5, uh, Israel is the wild vine. In uh, um, Jeremiah 2.21, Israel became a corrupt and degenerate vine. And in Ezekiel, Israel is the useless vine. And so this vine, this old vine, you might want to say, this false vine, is really reaching back to the Old Testament, identifying Israel as the vine that failed or ultimately um, didn't fulfill its purpose. Now, it's incredible as you look through Scripture and you see this illustration used in the Old Testament that Israel is referred to this figure many, many times, but each time, I say almost every time, it's the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on Israel. But, but enter Jesus. Here's Israel failed. Here's Israel not fulfilling the things that it's been called to do and enter Jesus, who now is not the vine, but the true vine. He takes place of Israel. Where Israel failed, Jesus now steps in. He is the one to whom Israel pointed ultimately. He is the one that brings forth good fruit. Now, I would like for us to go to Psalm 80. So if you would turn to the 80th Psalm, and let's read and see what it says there to help us understand how this is connected ultimately to Jesus, because in Psalm 80, we have that connection made. Psalm 80, beginning at verse 7. Restore us, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Okay, this is figurative. It's not saying I walked with a plant in my hand, all right? That vine, of course, is talking about Israel, you drove out the nations and you planted it. You get the picture there of entering into the, con uh, the, in, into the land of promise, into Canaan. Okay? You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. All right, so now it's populated. The mountains were covered wi uh, with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in uh, the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 16. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish and rebuke. Uh, at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. How does Jesus describe himself when he enters in the presence of Jerusalem? And as he enters into ministry, he identifies himself commonly, in particular in John's gospel, as the son of man. He's identifying himself here with this Old Testament analogy, pointing to him. So when he says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I'm going all the way back to Israel. They have failed. I am here. I am the true vine. And so the idea here then is that Israel, because of its apostasy and turning away to other idols, uh, made uh, their vine empty and disqualified as a channel for God's blessing. And so now Jesus steps in. And he is that true vine. Now, the word true is aletheos and means basically something that is real as distinct from something that is false, something that is perfect as distinguished from something that is imperfect, something that is genuine as distinguished from something that is counterfeit. So Jesus then is our real, perfect, genuine vine. He was Israel's real, perfect, genuine vine, and he is our real, perfect, genuine vine. I am the vine. So we must establish him as the vine in this 
analogy. Why? Because he says it, and it certainly fits with um, the Old Testament. All right? Secondly, notice that it says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So the father, then I'm saying, is the gardener, if you want to say it that way. The one who is actually attending the vine. He's the one that cares for it. He's the one that looks out for it. He does many things to make sure that the vine was healthy and strong. Things like planting, fertilizing, and watering the vine, you can say. But Jesus, in his illustration, pulls out two things specifically that that vine dresser or that gardener does with the vine. In doing those two things, though, he is identifying two kinds of branches, those that bear fruit and those that don't bear fruit. And then, ultimately, based on that, he tends the vine appropriately. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here is the analogy. Jesus is the vine, and there is a caretaker to that vine who is looking around, and he's looking for branches He's looking for branches that bear fruit and those that don't bear fruit. Those that do bear fruit, he's going to prune. Those that don't bear fruit, he is going to take away. So let's just pause and let's think about those pictures. He takes away. Verse 2 again, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes um, away. To take away literally means to prune away. Now I know Sid is here and you do this kind of stuff for a living and and if, if I am completely and totally off base, um, don't tell me, okay? And talk to him and correct it, okay? But hopefully I'll be there. And, and don't panic with some of my illustrations. It'll be okay. But if you're hyperventilating, I'll know I'm really, really way off, all right? It means to prune away. Now, um, this past week, my wife and I were just talking about, because the sun came out, we were talking about a particular bush we have in our backyard that has this yellow flower. We love it. It's beautiful problem is it's too big it's grown too big and we have these other bushes that are now being squelched and kind of um, it's infringing on their growth in fact if anything they're stunting a little bit and so we just talked about you know the need to go in there and to cut some things now I think there's there a couple of broken branches they were still connected but they were hanging and so it was like laying flat open and yet all the stuff was around so it was kind of ugly and it needed some help so uh, on Friday I was grilling some sausages okay and and the grill is like maybe about 15 feet from the bush. And so I thought, well, while I'm grilling, right, you don't just stand there and turn. I'm grilling. I'm also going to garden, okay? It's just one of those things. Both begin with G. It just kind of connected, and there I go, okay? So I get, I get the, the little shears, and I go down there, and I start, I start saying, okay, I'm going to pull this one out. And I pulled off the, the one that was broken. And, and, you know, I just, but before I did that, I just looked at it and said, man, you know, this is really going to hurt this bush, and I don't want to destroy the bush. But I just went in there and started to hack away kind of carefully. And, but it was interesting. The more, I, the more I cut away, the more I saw branches underneath that were just dead and, and really worthless, and they weren't doing anything. And, and the more I, 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 I cut things out and took the dead stuff out, the more I just kind of stepped back and thought to myself, you know what, now, now this, this bush can breathe a little bit, as well as the ones around it. So there's a sense in which like, you can definitely see the positive side. Now, I do not have a green thumb. So the reality is I could probably, uh, probably I have just killed this bush, but it, it works with the illustration really, really well, right? Um, but you don't want to trust my gardening skills. You want to trust God the Father's gardening skills here. And what he does is he tends this particular vine, and in this case, the, the, the true vine, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows how to identify a dead branch from a, a one that is bearing fruit. He, he knows um, how to prune those branches appropriately. But the, the stuff that's just dead wood, he cuts off and he removes. That's the picture here. But then there are those branches that are actually bearing fruit. Now, if you're like me and you, you know, you're ignorant of these things, you just don't say, leave it alone. It's bearing fruit. It'll be okay. Um, but apparently in that particular world, it is a good thing to prune things back, okay? And so uh, if you've ever been to my house, you know when you come to my, to my house, the front door on the right-hand side, I have two bougainvillea plants. You guys know what a bougainvillea is? They're, they're very pokey, okay? And these two plants are kind of like this long stems and this kind of big bushy thing at the top. Well, 
you know, they just got so enormous. And about two years ago, they were literally like hanging way down, and I was concerned that they were just going to break. And so uh, one day I just thought, you know, these things happen just in the moment. It's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tackle this, right? And I just go out there, and I had the, the shears. Fortunately, I had these electric ones, you know, until it was, you know, it was this big thing. So there's two of them. And when I was done, it looked like a, you know, a mangy poodle, you know, but it had, it had, <laughs> it had no leaves on it. And, you know, I was just thinking, okay, it's really cut back. And there was, like, huge space between them. I thought, you know, these things are, are never going to survive. And then, you know, two months later, they're just, like, shooting out all over the place. And, and apparently a very, very resilient plant. It has to be with me as its caretaker, right? The, the point was it was a good thing for me to cut it back. Now, I know there's rules of ratios. I think it's, you know, don't cut it back like more than one-third and stuff like that. I don't know any of that stuff. I don't know how to measure that. I just cut it back, and it grew back, and now it's grown back with vigor, and it's getting bushier again. I'm going to have to do it all over again. You've got to keep on pruning, keep on caring for that, okay? So cutting back and, and pruning made the way, ultimately, for the, the plant to, to continue a healthy growth and got rid of all the junk that was inside, too. Now, friends, if we're honest... We don't like pruning. We don't like to be pruned. It's painful, right? It's hurtful. It gets in the way. We have plans. We have things going on. Um, and if left to ourselves, we would not prune. In fact, sometimes we don't like pruning because we actually still love the dead wood in our life. We don't want God to do anything with it because we, we still want to nurse it a little bit. Um, General Sickle, um, who was a general during the um, Civil War on the Union side, at the Battle of Gettysburg, um, was uh, hit with a 12-pound um, cannonball, and it shattered his leg. Some of you may know the story. Um, unusually, um, he went to the field surgeon, and of course, in those days, you know, they give you chloroform and and then go to the surgeon, and you're, if you survive um, having that leg amputated and all the gangrene that was possible and stuff, you were very, very fortunate. Well, he did, and um, one of the unusual things is they took his limb and they took it back to the Army Museum, the newly established Army Museum, and um, it was put on display as a matter of posterity in this museum. And we're told, at least history books would say, that Every year on the day that he lost his leg, he would go back and he would visit his leg. I know it's weird, right? I mean, it's just, it's just you know, after all, where do you get this stuff from, right? But there, there's a sense in which, though, it was his leg, but there's also a sense in which it's not his leg, right? It's not a part of him. It's not attached anymore, okay? So... There's a picture here that we must see that the, there's a vine and there's a vine dresser and there's this, these branches that are bearing fruit, there's branches that aren't, and the ones that aren't bearing fruit are cut away, the ones that are are, are pruned back, and, and there's a sense in which what's pruned away from those who are branches, who are bearing fruit, it's no longer really part of who you are. And we, we need to see kind of like the, the sense of what Jesus is saying here, what he's seeking to to communicate to us, um, if we are not producing fruit at all, uh, he is basically going to reveal that to us. Now, remember, um, all the, the disciples haven't had clarity on this at this point in time. Jesus had told them that, that one of them was going to betray him, right? And here's one who's seen, from all appearance, to be attached to Jesus, to be one of the disciples, to be connected, having gone out and served, having gone out and ministered, having cared for the finances of that particular ministry team, and yet, ultimately, he would betray him. And so this is kind of a precursor preparation for them to understand. You can have all the appearance of being tapped into Jesus, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Okay? And so there may even be a little bit later when they find out that Jesus, Judas did betray him. You know, he was one of us, but he was cut off, and he's no longer one of us. And they may grieve, but at the same time, he really was not one of them. Okay. Now, there are branches then 
that do not bear fruit, and there are branches that do bear fruit. And I just wanted to emphasize here, the ones that don't bear fruit have the appearance that they are in the vine, but they're really only attached to the vine. They're, they're in the vicinity, they're around Jesus, they're, they're interacting with the things that are going on, but there really is no life that is coming from the vine. And there are those who are bearing fruit, and they are truly um, attached to the vine. They're abiding in the vine. They bear fruit. And so it's with these two pictures then of these two kinds of branches that the rest of the analogy then is given to us, and it really w- is where the application is. So we have this, this analogy given to us. Now we're moving into the application side of things, and we're looking at now followers, or followers of Christ ultimately are the branches. I remember years ago I listened to a sermon by R.C. Sproul, and it was called A Warning to Professors. And you know, initially I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be like a seminary lecture and you know, two seminary teachers and that kind of stuff. No. It was a message directed at people who were professing believers, okay? And the, the point here that we must understand is that there are plenty of people who profess to be followers of Christ. How in the world do you determine whether they are truly followers of Christ or whether they are not? And we have on a number of occasions uh, stumbled into that question and seen some instruction given to us by Jesus or by John as he's making comments in the Gospel of John. So um, turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and verse uh, 23 and following. Remember this passage, right? It's actually a very, very, um, very telling passage at the front of the Gospel. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, and they saw the signs that he was doing. So they believed in his name. They saw the signs. They were excited. It was great. Ministry was happening. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, they may have had all the appearance of believing in him, but he knew what was really going on in their heart, and he wasn't having any of it. Now, friends, we in an American Christian culture are so eager to see people come to know the Lord that sometimes we can put gospel blinders on and we're just like, yeah, just come. Oh, they responded or, you know, they're excited or whatever it might be because we were eager to see the church grow and we're not careful to actually say, what is a true disciple of Christ? What does true conversion actually look like? And so one of the results of that, friends, hear this, is that there are churches in American Christian culture that are populated with people that think that they're part of the body of Christ, but they're not. Now, I'm not here to say you are and you're not, and you are and you're not. But it's, it's a culture that we must understand that has presented a soft gospel. And here, Jesus is, is being careful to say, listen, just because there's some kind of a excited and emotional and kind of pizzazz response does not mean that true conversion has taken place. Because I know what is in the heart of man. A little bit later in John's gospel, just a little bit more indication here in John chapter 10, he talks about thieves and robbers entering into the fold that are really false shepherds that are leading the sheep astray. So again, you have this idea of people presenting themselves to be one thing, but they're actually another. Okay, During the foot washing, this is where the whole, the whole idea of Judas comes, comes up in John chapter 13 and verse 10 and following it says this, Jesus said to him, Uh, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. See that? He's completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. You are clean, but not every one of you. But we know that Jesus washed Judas' feet. So he was washed on the outside, but he wasn't clean on the inside. That's the picture there. Not all of you are clean. And, of course, there he's talking about Judas Iscariot. So let's, again, allow the text to distinguish for us what a true branch looks like and what, a, um, what I'm calling a withered branch ultimately looks like. Here's the, the true branch. And we're going to identify it really with, I think it's four, um, four characteristics. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken, Jesus says. Already you are what? Clean. Just like he said earlier, with the disciples after the foot washing, you know, you're all clean, but except for one. Already you are clean. 
And so the idea here in the Greek language, there's actually a play on some words here. The expression takes away is um, ire, prunes is kathare, and clean is katharoi. And the idea there is that they're all coming from the same word, which ultimately means to clean. So when he's, when he's cutting away dead branches, he's cleaning the vine. When he's pruning, he's cleaning away to help more growth. But ultimately, those who are his disciples are clean. They begin clean. It's a clean snip. It's a wonderful place for growth to take place from. That's the idea. It's a play on words, which gives us some indication that, that it draws our attention, if you're reading in Greek, to say, ah, there's something going on here. It's kind of like uh, me saying to you something like this. Um, a man named Bill picked up the $100 bills with his bill. Three words mean three different things, but you realize, okay, those words are all connected for a reason. In the Greek, that's the same way. So it's drawing our attention to the fact that, that these three words identify these two different groups and that the disciples specifically begin clean but ultimately need to be what? Pruned. Okay? And that's true then for us. So the branches that are cleaned are the disciples who are already clean. They have been washed by the water of the word. They have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. They have been made anew. Okay? Um, the rivers of living water have, have had their way with them. So this is the core reality of the gospel. It is where we return to when we wander away. Why is it we celebrate the Lord's table? We usually have it over here. We come, we celebrate the Lord's table because month by month, at least, we want to come face to face with the basic core reality of the gospel. It's that place to go back to say, no matter what has happened during that time, I'm coming back to the fact that, Jesus, you died for me on that cross. You, you gave your body completely, and you shed your blood to pay for my sin. That is the foundation. That is the basics. That is, the, that is where everything begins. And also, because of the gospel, we are holy. And, and Scripture talks about, now be holy because you are holy. Well, it's talking about the practical living out of our walk with God. But when God looks down at us, he looks at us through the garments of Jesus Christ. And we have been declared righteous by him. We are clothed in his righteousness. So he looks down and he says, you are holy. And so this, this true branch, first of all, is clean, is clean. Now, secondly, this true branch also abides, abides. And we've talked a little bit about what that word means. But let's read verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. So as I mentioned before, to abide means ultimately to remain, to continue in a fixed state, to endure. This word is used 10 times in these 11 verses, which might mean that Jesus is trying to tell us something, right? Now, like I mentioned before, got to be careful, because I do think that some people take this word abide as kind of this, this mystical, experiential thing, you know, boy, you just need to abide with Jesus. You know, if you just would abide, you know, if you draw it out longer, it's just more spiritual, it's more mystical then, right? No, you either are abiding or you are not. That's the picture. You don't have to somehow, you know, go to some special conferences or apply some special formula or even visit the Holy Land to have that experience in order to abide. It is what happens to every person who embraces Christ as their Lord and Savior. You have entered into a new vein of strength, a new resource. That is Jesus Christ himself. And we might even say, flashing back a little bit to chapter 14, that is experienced by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because Jesus says, I am in you. Well, how is he in us? Because he's seated at the right hand of God. Well, he's in us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is another comforter just like himself, right? So we see those activities working hand in hand. So unless you are abiding, unless you are uh, tapped into Jesus, you are useless and you will not bear fruit. So you can't bear fruit. That's the point. Without me, you can do nothing. And then Jesus says something that I think is important for us to recognize because in the Greek it is emphatic. You say, well, why is he saying this? He says in verse 5, 
I am the vine, you're the branches. Yeah, okay. Uh, we already got that established. It's almost like he's saying, listen, remember, I am the vine. You're not the vine. Some of us want to be the vine. Some of us want to take place of Jesus. Some of us want the world to revolve around us. Some of us want to be the center of everything. And Jesus says, wait a second, wait a second. No, no, no. You cannot do anything on your own. It all has to flow from me. I am the one who gives you the strength. I am the one that gives you the resource. I am the one who is in charge. Now, it's good for us to be reminded of that, isn't it? That he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who's in control. He is the one that actually gives life into, um, into our lives and, and purpose and direction and counsel and wisdom. So we are clean. Uh, this branch is, is abiding. Third thing is this. This branch ultimately then, based on that, will bear fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So he bears fruit, but he also bears much fruit. Um, so there's kind of like this, this abundance now of fruit. It's not just here's one little fruit. Here it is. I brought my fruit with me today. See, just one little fruit. No, it's much fruit, it's, and it's all sorts of different kinds of fruit. The question now is this. Um, what is that fruit? Again, there's a lot of, lot of discussion as to what that, that fruit is. The, um, the American church today, I'm, I'm you know, broad suit, but I'm just saying much of American Christian culture, I think, has bought the lie that, that fruit is measured by outward success. Listen, how many people do you have attending your church? Right? And maybe it's saying a little different way. The health, wealth, and prosperity crowd would say, well, what stuff do you have? How much do you have? You know, how, how big is the facility that you, that you have? Why? Oh, you're wearing designer clothes as opposed to Target clothes, you know? I mean, you don't walk around and say, look, I got Target on today, right? I mean, you don't, it's not usually the way it is. But you, you can just kind of like walk through life trying to impress people with all these outward things. And is that really the kind of the fruit that, that is being talked about here? You know, it's, it's outward Stuff. Listen to what John MacArthur says about this. A popular misconception equates fruit with outward success. By that common standard, external religion, superficial righteousness, having a large church, a popular ministry, or a successful program are considered fruitful, but the Bible nowhere equates fruit with superficial external behavior or results, with deceivers or hypocrites, uh, as well as non-Christian cults and religions, uh, or sorry, sorry, with which, Deceivers and hypocrites, as well as non-Christian cults and religions, can duplicate. In other words, you can go, you can go to some other religion, and, and and they've got big buildings, they've got lots of people, they're rich. Does that mean they're bearing the kind of fruit that's being talked about? Okay. He says instead, Scripture defines fruit in terms of spiritual qualities. So, what are some of those spiritual qualities that are being talked about here? Um, let me give you four. They're not going to be up on the screen. Um, the first one, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all the fruit, singular, not the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit at work in us, bearing fruit, okay? So these are all spiritual qualities growing in these various different areas, growing in your patience, in your kindness, in your gentleness. Uh, have you guys experienced that? You've experienced it's it's a it's a God dominated fruit. It's not because of you saying, I'm just gonna discipline myself to be kinder and gentler and all that. It's it's like God, you you it's almost like afterwards you're like, Wow, I did that. You know, I remember when I was a new believer, uh, one of the things I struggled with was anger. And um I just remember, and I w I, it would be demonstrated on the soccer field. I was one of those guys on the soccer field that would, that would be yelling at you if you were marking me. And I would be very unkind. Um, and I found myself, after I came to know the Lord, that he was already doing something in me that was changing my demeanor. It wasn't that one day I said, you know, I've got to stop being angry on the field. It's just I just stepped back. It's like, wow, this is really cool. Because it's almost like it was just taken away from me. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's the change that has taken place. All right? Um, Hebrews 13, 15. Just one verse describing this particular aspect of fruit. 
through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So praise to him is a fruit. When we gather and we sing and we're singing from the heart, if, you know, if we're singing and we're, we're, we're contemplating who he is and we're contemplating the words and it's from the heart, that's, that's fruit of praise. But we can also gather and sing. And we can be more concerned about hitting the right notes. We can be more concerned about people hearing us because our voice is so wonderful. I want everyone to hear. And, and you, you, you move around different parts of the auditorium because you want each Sunday you want different people to be blessed by the fruit of your voice. No, it's the fruit of a heart that wants to praise God whether you sing well or not, right? He, it's, just a, it's, it's just an opportunity to praise him, and that is, that is considered a fruit. Then there's simply um, godly, holy, and righteous behavior. You might want to write down Matthew 3.8, Philippians 1.11. Matthew 3.8, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And one of the ways you measure whether or not there is true repentance is that there is a fruit, there is evidence, that there is a change. Okay? And so you, you're looking for fruit. Sometimes fruit doesn't appear right away. But this is the lifelong habits that are taking place as we move along. And then, then the fruit can also be considered um, to be genuine converts to the gospel. Genuine converts. And uh, John 12, 24 would be a good passage to, to, to think about there. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, you have to die in order to bear fruit. All right, you have to... Die to self. You have to be crucified with Christ. All right? You have to, you know, give everything. You know, I was just thinking about uh, just an analogy that I think is really, really important, and, and you may not, hopefully you know nothing about this, but this might, this might help. But um, in, in the game of poker, uh, more recently, because it's on TV. By the way, it's like, you know, the extreme, it's on ESPN Sport of Poker. So they go work out, so picking up chips, you know. I mean, you know, wh what is up with that? Well, it's considered a sport. But in that, there is a phrase. And that is, when you got a good hand, what do you do? Just go all in. Right? You say, I have no idea because I don't know anything about poker, right? You go all in. And just, just think about this. Um, God, in his sovereignty, has gone all in with his plan with Jesus going to the cross. Everything that he could do, he did by sending his son Jesus. And the reality is that when we come before him and embrace him as our Lord and Savior, it's not adding him to our lives. It's not just somehow you know, coming up and attaching ourselves. We are all in. And I remember when I was a, a youth pastor, I remember one guy, he was a leader in the youth group, and he was telling one of the young people, listen, all you have to do is add Jesus to your life. I said, no, 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 no. That's not what Scripture says. Right? Salvation is a total conversion. You're all in. It's not just an addition to. And I fear that many people do struggle with that all-in mindset. So here we are. It bears much fruit. In John 15, where the Father is glorified by our fruit, it speaks of this, this life. And, and these activities, not just as individual things, but all of these things together. Just think of this. If you are a child of God and you are abiding in the vine, that's, you are truly tapped into the vine. Life is flowing from the vine into you. Fruit then is not just one thing. Fruit is all those things that he is at work doing in you as he is molding and shaping you for his glory. So it's not just talking about new believers. It's talking about all those different things that are at work in your life. So it's going to come out in all sorts of different ways. So a true branch is a branch that is bearing fruit. Here's the last one. Look, if you would, please, at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. And I just use one word here to kind of encompass that. A, a true branch cooperates. It goes to God in prayer. When, when, when there's something to ask, you go to God in prayer. I think it's also encompassing this, this aspect of, of obedience. 
and listening to what God says and, and, and doing what he says. And look at verse 9. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And a little later on, and, and also in chapter 14, it talks about how God is glorified by our obedience, by following his word. Okay? So all these things are working together. We cooperate with him. We're not just saying, okay, I'm, you know, I'm one of your children, I'm one of your disciples, but I'm doing this on my own now. No, we're saying, God, is this what you want me to do? Give me understanding. Give me wisdom. Why? Because I am tapped into you. Life, growth, everything that is absolutely necessary is going to come only from you. And so I want to do all this fruit bearing in a way that glorifies you. So that's kind of the picture that is going on here with those that are part of the true branch or are true branches. Then there's the withered branch. The withered branch. Verse 6 and following here. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered together, thrown into the fire and burned. Now I want to just throw out a little caution here. Um, Be careful that you're not taking Pauline theology and reading it back into the gospel, okay? Because Paul in his, epo- his epistles uses the expression to be in Christ, okay? And Jesus now is using this Im- image and talking about abide in me, and it's, it's possible that we can read too much into what Jesus is illustrating. Jesus is simply illustrating the fact that there are two different kinds of people, that are associated to him. There are those that are true believers, those that are, that are not true believers. Okay, So we want to be careful we're not bringing that kind of language into what's, what's taking place here. It's simply a distinction. And as we, as we look in the New Testament, here, here are some other ways that are used to describe this wither or these withered branches. They are tares among wheat. All right? They are the bad fish that are thrown away. They are the goats contemned to eternal punishment. They are those left standing outside the door when the head of the house shuts the door. They're foolish virgins shut out of a wedding feast. They are uh, useless slaves who bury their master's treasure. I'm just giving you just kind of a snapshot of different ways that Jesus is describing these people that seem to be a part of the fold, seem to be a part of the group, seem to have all the appearance of being in, but they're not. They are apostates who eventually leave the fellowship. The idea there of apostatizing is to to depart, it's to leave a place that you once begun, uh, and in particular the idea of embracing truths or embracing uh, Christ. They continue to sin willfully after they have received knowledge of the truth. They think that they are on their way to heaven, but they're actually on the broad path that leads to hell. That would be Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Now, friends, it's, it's, it's chilling when you think about it that Jesus would speak to the Jews in particular with such bold and clarifying language. That you're either here or you're here. That you either are believing or you're not believing. And now, as we come to chapter 15, he's speaking to his disciples. It's one thing to say to the Jews, but now to those who have been with him for three years, ministering, serving, going out and carrying on ministry. And he's saying, listen, there are those that have all the appearance of being true branches, but they're not. They are ultimately withered branches. And so I'm going to cut them off. And so we, we find these these words that are used. They're gathered after they're cut, they're thrown into the fire, and they are burned. As I gathered the pieces of that bush, you remember that I cut on Friday, um, I considered, now what do I do in our context? I'm going to cut them smaller and put them into the green waste, um, or I'm just going to just hold on to them because they'll wither some more and I can use them for, we've got a fire pit in our backyard and we like to use it and it's always good to have some good kindling there. I mean, the picture here is just of that. It's now useless for growth. It's useful for burning. <laughs> in fact, it's helpful for burning, but it's not there for growth. And certainly these expressions describe and point to ultimate judgment. And just listen to Matthew 13, verses 49 and following, Matthew 13 and 49 and following. I'm sorry, I didn't give you this stuff. Um, oh, that's where we're at. Um, 
will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. So they'll separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same language, same kind of picture, destruction, burning. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many uh, works in your name? And I failed to write down the next verse, which is so important here. Matthew 7, verse 23. And uh, it says this. And then you will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there's clearly this, this picture in the New Testament from Jesus' lips over and over and over again that there are two groups. And, and here's a way you identify whether you are in this one group. You are clean. You are um, abiding. You are bearing fruit. You are cooperating. Or you are this withered branch that is simply dead wood that needs to be cut away. It's gathered and it's thrown into the fire. Now, uh, let's, let's go to the, the fourth, I think, ultimate application now. So we, we've, had, we've had the application specifically about the branches. Now here's the encouragement. Remember the context. This is not just some, some cold teaching that we look at and say, ah, okay, Jesus is talking about the vine. He's speaking to his disciples. And the context is he is going to be leaving. In fact, the very... That very night, he is going to be arrested. He's going to be taken. Ultimately, that day, he's going to be put on trial and so on and so forth. Okay? So the context is really important. Jesus' words here are supposed to be an encouragement and a help to these disciples. And so there's a reason why he's giving it to them, and there's a reason why he wants them to be encouraged, and that would be true for us too. So yes, we want to look at this passage and we want to say, okay, where do I fit? But we also want to be encouraged, if in particular, if we are his followers if we are truly part of that that true branch that is bearing fruit what is some encouragement that we can receive from him here we have the fruit now ultimately of abiding and there are three words that really flow out of of these next few verses and it's very very clear because jesus says listen this is what i have done and so this is what you receive this is what i have done and so this is what you receive this is what i have done and so this is what you receive the first one is this we experience his love we experience his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, abide in my love. All right? Fathers love me. I love you. Now abide in that love. All right? Rest in it. Remain in it. He's saying, just, it's my example. Now, one of the things you have to ask yourself the question is, uh, so if the Father loves him, does that make Jesus any less than the Father? And right, No. There's just this wonderful relationship that is going on here in these, these chapters, just describing the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they have completely different roles. But they are completely united in their understanding and their relationship together. Their function is different. Secondly, there's also this idea of um, desiring obedience. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So he's saying, listen, I've kept my Father's commandments, and ultimately, what do I do? I'm abiding in His love. So this is the fruit, friends, of abiding. This is a fruit of actually being one of those true branches. We experience His love. We desire obedience. It's not just obedience when I want. We truly want we're pursuing, we're eager for what God wants also. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm your example. Follow my example. Father loved me, I love you. I listen to his commandments, I obey them, I want you to do the same thing too. But it's all flowing from Jesus who is the vine. The third one is this, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. So the fruit of abiding is ultimately joy. Now just think about that. Just think about these three words. Here is the ultimate fruit. Here is the ultimate assurance. You will be and you are loved. Anyone in this world not want to experience that? Secondly, you 
will know how to live. Because in order to keep someone's commandments, you must be instructed what those commandments are. And there's something very valuable about knowing how things are laid out and what you're supposed to do. So he says, listen, you are loved. You know how to live. Here's the third thing. You can enjoy life to the fullest. Now, friends, look, this, is, this is the result. This is the fruit now of abiding. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you say to someone, listen, you, you want to be loved? You want to have a purpose in your life? You want to experience joy? <laughs> Guess what? Abide. Now, that's not saying to a believer somehow have this mystical experience. It's simply saying, listen, if you truly are a child of God, this is what you have been given. Been given his love. You've been given this wonderful desire to follow and to keep his commandments, knowing that they are beneficial to you and glorifying of him. And you are also the one who will experience joy and joy to the full. Now, we need to clarify what joy is, right? Because joy is not happiness. Anyone have any sadness this week? Anyone going through a really, really hard time? Absolutely. We could just go around the room and just talk about all sorts of different things that are happening. But joy is not based on circumstances. Happiness is. Joy is based on the reality of understanding your position in Christ. It's a perspective that is rooted in a greater purpose that God has for you because he is sovereign, because he is he is breathed life into you because he has placed you on this earth, that even the things that you are facing that are trials, you can count it as joy because he is working through that. So that brings us then to um, Psalm 1 and, 1 and verse 3, where it says this. This person here then that is experiencing the fruit of abiding is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. That's not a health, wealth, and prosperity message there. What it's saying is this. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are embracing Christ as your Savior, in the Old Testament, talking about I am united with the God of Israel, then I am going to be experiencing all sorts of different things in my life. I'll be like that tree, however, that has its roots planted deep into the rivers of water. Storms come. Heat, heavy, all sorts of things can happen to that tree. But guess what? During its season, during its difficulty, during its time, it's going to produce fruit. It's going to be a prosperous tree. And just like this vine, when we are abiding in the vine, we are blessed with the promise that there is going to be fruit that is taking place in us. Friends, it's just, it's just an awesome reality. It's a fresh way for us to look at our relationship with Christ. Now, I just want to plead with you, be careful here not to see abiding as that mystical thing, but that positional thing. You, if you're a child of God, are abiding. You are the one who is loved. You are the one who has a plan and purpose. You are the one who ultimately can experience life full of joy to the fullest. And that fullest comes from this resource that is the vine that ultimately is Christ. So now, let me, let me leave you with, with two things to contemplate. And these are just kind of going back and wrapping our heads around uh, the concepts that are here. So the first one is this. The true disciple will be revealed. Now, I'm just trying to say this. The purpose, the purpose and the logic of this section of Scripture is to make an argument that there are two different groups. True disciple abides in Christ, bears fruit, desires obedience, and will be pruned. Is this a picture of your life? As I mentioned earlier, there's, there's too many people who sit in churches around the Bay Area and the United States who are caught up with the American Christian culture that preaches and teaches a light gospel that paints a picture that following Christ is measured by things like attending church, serving being a part of community, having a pleasant personality. But listen, all these things can happen even when you are dead on a withered branch. 
And so this passage causes us to come face to face and ask ourselves the question, what kind of fruit are you measuring your Christian walk by? Doesn't matter how many chapters of the Bible you read. As far as a measuring tool to, to look at your own Christian walk, right? Doesn't matter about how many times you darken the door of the church. What's going on here is saying that life is happening internally and it's, it's tapped into this, the source that is Christ. And so it's Christ in you who's working through you, who is accomplishing his will by producing fruit that is abounding in your life. It's not some kind of external habit or thing that I'm checking off. Right? So it's going to be evident um, in your growth in Christian character. It's going to be evident in things like a hunger for God's truth. It's going to be evident for when you're put into a maybe a, a trial or a pickle of, of decision-making, you're saying, I want to do God's will. That's what I want to do. And you might be in a quandary for a while, but you're pleading with God because you want wisdom, you want discernment. That's evidence that you want his will. As opposed to simply saying, well, I'm a quick decision-maker. Boom, I'll do what I want. And it's like you're, you're evaluating things that are internal, not externals. It's growth in obedience to his will. It's growth ultimately in maturity. Life, friends, is found in Jesus alone. And so there is this self-evaluation that we must be, must be doing. And what is this passage revealing about you and about your walk with him? Secondly, a true disciple will be pruned. Friends, there are times when you are being pruned um, and you don't want to see it as pruning. Sometimes you want to ask yourself the question, why is God doing this to me? Why is he punishing me? Why does this have to be so painful? I'm not saying those are wrong questions. Those are the kind of questions that we'd be wrestling with. But if we understand the whole process of pruning, the pruning is necessary for the health of the growth of that particular plant. Am I correct there, Sid? Do you, do you prune quite regularly? Yeah? How often should a tree be pruned, let's say? About once a year. Okay. See, I, I'm already like three or four years behind. Right? And, and if that is true, I mean, listen, if you think, oh, that, that orange tree or that whatever tree you have in your backyard needs to be pruned again, does that mean that God wants to prune me again? Maybe once every 10, 20 years he can prune me. No, pruning is just like a regular part of the process. He's, he's wanting to get rid of all this extra dead weight and create room for new growth and new fruit to take place. And friends, as much as it is painful or difficult, um, we need to embrace it as part of God's plan. So this, this pruning often comes in the form of trials and challenges, struggles, but he's all, always seeking to produce in us character and growth. And so we'll, we'll, we'll finish up with the passage of Scripture that we began with this, this day, and that would be James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and I think it's just an application of all that we've learned here this morning for those who are part of the true branch, that would be we are truly believers, to say this, that James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, gives us instructions then about what we are to do and how we are to do it. He says they're counted all joy. In other words, make a decision because you are tapped into the vine. Life comes from Jesus. When trials come, I am putting that trial in the joy category. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, ah, I know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If it's producing something, what is that? It's a fruit. So I, I, I consider it joy. What's going on in my life? Why the struggle? Why the sickness? Why this trial? Why this heartache? I can say, okay, wait a second here. God is at work, and he is seeking to prune me, and so I am going to force myself, even though it feels like something I don't want, to say it's joy, and I'm going to trust a sovereign God who is at work doing something great in my life, and I'm going to respond with joy, even though I tell you what, it's hard. It is hard to do that at times. But in doing that, I recognize then that he is working on whatever that characteristic is. He's producing patience, 
and that patience produces then steadfastness. Um, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Friends, I want to be there. And the process of getting there is recognizing that in abiding comes pruning. And so when the pruning comes, say, God, I desire obedience. I desire to do your will. Lord, I, I, I'm clean because of you, and because of you I bear fruit. And now that I am facing this trial, I want to be obedient to you. So, Lord, now do what you will and help me to cooperate with you so that you can be glorified. And when I do that, I will experience joy in full. So he says to his disciples, listen, you're going to go. <laughs> and when you go, remember you're abiding in me. So help us today. Be mindful that we have been sent to live our lives for your glory. And that as your children, um, we are abiding. Because, Lord, you are our strength. You are our source. And that abiding results in fruit. And Lord, help us to be mindful to, to see the ways in which you are growing us. Maybe there are those around us that can observe ways in which our character has changed or decisions that we've made, Lord, will be in conformity to your will where maybe before we wouldn't do that or, or just ways in which we seek to, to know your heart and to do, Lord, what you've called us to do. Lord, just help us to, to have an extra measure of understanding and evidence this week. Um, Lord, you are a great God. We, we don't deserve, Lord, to, to have the kind of nourishment and strength that you give and that you promise, and yet, Lord, we have it because of your children. So, Lord, help us not to, not to think that we have to jump through all sorts of different hoops to somehow impress you or somehow get some experiential thing going on to prove that we're abiding. Lord, help us just to rest in the fact that we are, and then, Lord, to live our lives in such a way that we are, we are nursing and we're, we're growing in that abiding and understanding, and Lord, what that life looks like and what it means so that that fruit can be taking place. And Lord, ultimately to, to have joy. And Lord, and then with that being true, Lord, would you allow us then to be joyful people that would demonstrate, Lord, by our joy that it is you that is alive in us. And Lord, that that life in us then would be attractive to others, Lord, that you are already at work bringing to yourself. Lord, help us just to see the beauty of that whole picture and package. And, Lord, help us to fight as hard as we can to consider things, Lord, joy when we are going through difficult times and trials. And then, Lord, finally, I would ask, as you encourage us with this text, that you would help us to be honest in our self-evaluation, that your Holy Spirit would, would draw our attention, Lord, to whether or not we truly are a branch that is bearing fruit or we're not. And, Lord, that we would not run away from you, but Lord, that would draw us to you, and we would humble ourselves before you, and confess our sins, and seek forgiveness, Lord, that comes as a result of what you've done at the cross, and enter into new life with you as our vine. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name.